As we start, let me, let me just ask you a question. I want you to jog your memory and think of one time in your life where you had to be courageous, right? So, so some of you, that memory's already, it's already there. You know exactly what that time in your life was. That one time where, man, you just had to muster up some, some real courage. You know, some of you, I know, you served in the military. You did some, some, some combat tours. And so for you, it's easy. I think about uh, moms who have, who have given birth, right? And you're going into that labor and de- delivery room and you know you got like 10 hours of torture ahead of you. And man, that, that's courage. I don't know how you ladies do that. Uh, maybe you're in school or you were in school and you remember a, a bully, right? And you just, man, you had to show up every day and look that bully in the face. And man, that takes, man, that takes a lot of courage. That takes real courage. It doesn't matter if you're in elementary school or you're an old guy like me, that, that really takes a lot of courage. So I was, as I was thinking about that this week, I thought of a, just a kind of a goofy, uh, a funny, funny memory. But, but years ago now, you guys know if you've been around, there are a couple things that, that I don't do in life. I'm kind of a little bit afraid of, phobias, whatever you want to call them. One is sharks, right? So I, when I go to the beach, I just kind of stay ankle, ankle deep. I don't want jaws eating me. That's just like the worst way to go, I think. Uh, the other is heights, right? So if I get over about 10, 10 feet, I, my, my heart rate just goes up. You know, I just, I just can't control it. If I, if, I get, if I get up too high, man, my palms get sweaty, my knees are weak, arms are heavy, you know, the whole, the whole nine yards. And it, so it's just like this really scary thing for me. And uh, so my wife is the opposite. Like, she likes being high up. She went skydiving in college, the whole nine yards, right? And uh, so a few years ago, I decided, hey, I'm gonna, I want to do something that she wants to do. Might be uncomfortable for me, but she would enjoy it. She would appreciate it. And I can't remember if it was birthday, anniversary, one of those special occasions. And uh, so I signed up, bought tickets for a zip lining tour. I'm like, man, how, how bad could it be? Wee, like, it, can't be it can't be that bad, right? So we get there, and it was not what I had imagined. That I can tell you. Uh, we get up on that first tower, and I look down, and I'm like, this is way higher than the pictures. Like, those pictures are deceptive. This is false advertising. I'm going to hire a lawyer. And so we get on there, and we go down the, the first little zip thing, and I close my eyes like a little girl, and I'm, and it is as bad as I imagined that it would be. It's terrifying. You look down, you see the tops of trees, and um, I, was, I was not enjoying it. And so you get to that second tower, and they actually have, because apparently a lot of people freak out, they have a little exit ramp, right? So if you go down the first one, you're like, I can't handle it. This is too high. You can just exit stage left. You know, no judgment. Actually, everybody's judging you. But, you know, you can take the walk of shame off the thing. And um, so I remember I had this, this moment in life where I had this crossroads, right? And I was standing there, and I was looking at my sweet little wife, and I was looking at the off-ramp. And that was a hard decision, <laughs> you know. And uh, I don't think it was courage as much as it was pride and shame. They're like, man, I can't, I can't look at this woman for the rest of my life after she wa- watches me punk out. And so I went on it, and it was terrifying. We had to repel down all these high things, and it was horrible. And again, I, I'm not so sure that was courage. I think it was more pride, shame. But, but listen, the, the reality is courage is a very, very important, crucial component of living a meaningful life. Right, because without courage, we just kind of live half-lives, and some of you are there. We just kind of cower in the moment. We, we kind of play it safe in life. We miss out. I'm convinced on a lot that God wants us to experience in life. I love the quote from uh, C.S. Lewis, the great writer. He says this, Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. Man, isn't that good? And what Lewis was saying is, man, you, you can't really experience what true, authentic love is without courage. Because it's going to get hard sometime. You're going to want to walk out the door sometime. You can't experience real love without courage. 
You can't live an authentically generous life without courage. You can't battle injustice without courage. You name it, man. It's the virtue upon which every other virtue is built in this life. And what Daniel chapter 3 is going to show us is how and why courage is so important in the kingdom of God. And so let me encourage you, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open them up, turn them on on your device, go to Daniel chapter 3. That's where we're going to be together this morning. Let me pray as you find your place, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you, and and at least my confession would be that courage doesn't come uh, naturally to me. Uh, It's certainly not the supernatural kind of courage that we're going to be looking at this morning. And so, Father, this is something that that we need you to produce in our lives. We need you to breathe this into our souls so that we can live this out, that we can experience life the way that you want us to, not cowering, not always playing it safe, but really to experience the abundant life that you have for us, God. And so would you be with us now? Would you illuminate these ancient words to our minds, our souls, our hearts in a real significant way? God, that we would walk out of here as different men, women, boys, and girls than when we came in, and we ask this all for the glory of King Jesus. Amen. All right, now I'm going to be reading uh, parts of chapter 3. I'll also be narrating parts of it, because if I read the whole thing uh, word for word, we'd be here to like 3 o'clock, and I know none of you want to be here at 3 o'clock. So that's the way we're going to do it. So let's start. Uh, Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Daniel writes this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and breadth. Uh, six cubits, that's, that's nine, 90 feet tall. And nine feet wide. Okay, so this is a massive statue, a massive structure. He set it up in the, in the, on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that the king had set up. Now, here, here's what's going on. If you were here last week, you remember uh, the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel interpreted for him. You guys remember that dream? So he had a dream of a statue, remember? So the, the head of the statue was what? Gold. And that represented Babylon, right? King Nebuchadnezzar. But then the chest and the arms were made of silver. That represented Persia, who, was, who were going to come and overthrow Nebuchadnezzar. And we know that that historically did happen. And then the torso was made of bronze, right? Representing the, the Greek empire, Alexander the Great. And then finally, the legs were made of what? Iron? mixed with clay, and that represented uh, Rome. And so basically, the message that God was giving Nebuchadnezzar is, hey, look, you're living in glory now. I've given you my favor, but the reality is there are other kingdoms that are coming that are going to overthrow your kingdom. And so the very next chapter, he builds an entire statue made of gold. Now, what do you think he was communicating there? What's that about? This is blasphemy, right? He's saying, I will defy God. There will be no other kingdom. It's all gold. It's all Babylon. It's all me. It's all Nebuchadnezzar. This is the height of arrogance and self-worship. And so Nebuchadnezzar sends out an invite to everybody who is somebody uh, in the kingdom, all the officials and important people and business people. Man, if you were important, you got an invite to this ribbon-cutting ceremony for the golden statue. This would have been, I imagine, like a black tie affair in our culture. Now, we don't know what the statue looked like. We don't know if it was, some scholars speculate, maybe it was actually a, a statue, an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Certainly wouldn't be surprising knowing how, how arrogant this guy is. Maybe it was a statue of one of the Babylonian gods. The text really doesn't tell us. But what is clear is, is Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I'm in charge, God is not. All right, so, so thank you very much, God, but you just need to know, 
I'm calling the shots. Like, this, is, this is my world. And so the, the party starts, right? People are filing in. I, I just imagine the, the hors d'oeuvre trays are, are world-class. They're like bacon-encrusted everything. The champagne is flowing, man. The music is bumping. It's awesome. The party host gets up on the stage, taps on the microphone, and says, excuse me, uh, may I please have your attention? And then we get to verse number four. And the herald, the stage host, party host, proclaim aloud, you are commanded... O oh, peoples, nations, languages, that when you hear the sound of, and it goes to the list of all those musical instruments again, every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of all those musical instruments, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worship the golden image that the king had set up. So the party host looks out at the crowd as they're having a good time, and he says, hey guys, listen, here's the deal. Glad you're here. Hope you're enjoying all the food, all the world-class music, all this stuff. But when the DJ plays the certain song, everybody needs to bow down and worship this golden image. And if you don't, I need you to know there's going to be a price to be paid. You see that, that smokestack over there? That's a burning furnace. And if you don't bow down to this image, we're going to throw you in that and uh, you're going to die today. So this thing escalates pretty quickly, right? There are probably a lot of people there that are thinking, man, I was here for the champagne and the potato skin bites. I and now we're talking about bowing down to this thing and we're going to be burnt alive. Like this, this is not what I signed up for. Now, I, l let me just pause the story there for one second and say something, because I think that we can sometimes, in 2022, we can come to stories like Daniel chapter 3, and we can think, cool, cool, uh, that's awesome, Chris. What does this have to do with my life? <laughs> you know, like, this 90-foot golden statue 2,600 years ago. Like, man, I got a lot of problems in my life, but being tempted to bow down to a 100-foot statue is not really one of the top issues pressing in my life as a single mom or a high school student or a college student or a retired grandparent or whatever it is. And I think it's probably a pretty natural thought for us to have. But here, here's where I think we can get it wrong. Listen, guys, an idol doesn't have to be some statue that you bow, bow down to. In fact, let, let me give you what I think is a, is a good biblical definition of what an idol is. An idol is any good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing. An idol is any good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing. Now, to be sure, we could also turn bad things into idols, like drug abuse or something like that. But far too often, we can forget that idols can be good things that we make God things. Right? Things that were, that were intended to be secondary in our lives, and we make them primary in our lives. Let me just give you a couple of examples as I kind of skin the landscape of our culture today. I think most of you parents, grandparents, you would agree, children are a gift from the Lord. Right? The Bible says that. Book of Psalms. Children are a gift from the Lord. As a father of, of three kids, I can tell you, man, I, I love my kids like crazy. Now, there's nothing I would not do for my three kids. It's a deep bond, as it should be. I think all that is normal, healthy, godly. But what I see in our culture today are so many parents that are elevating a good thing in their kids to a God thing. Just living vicariously through their kids. Now, this usually, in my experience, as I observe, revolves around sports. Not, not always. For some parents, it's uh, the GPA. It's the academic success. It's the music recitals. It's the, the plays. It's the theater. But for, for most people, at least in my circles, the people that I'm connected to, it seems like it's sports. 
And you know these parents, right? It's all they talk about. It's all they post on social media about. Hey, little Johnny hit three home runs this weekend. Isn't little Johnny awesome? Or little Jenny scored four goals in the soccer tournament in Charlotte this weekend. Isn't she awesome? And I just want to pause and say to them, look, your kid is not going to ever be a professional athlete. You want to know why? Because they have your genes, right? Have you looked in the mirror lately? They don't have LeBron genes. They don't have MJ genes. They don't have Tiger genes. They don't have Tom Brady genes. They got your genes. And you know why my kids are probably not ever going to be pro athletes? Because they got my genes, right? So mom, dad, just chillax on the sports, right? Relax. Love your kids. Yes. Be proud of your kids. That's fine. But we can take a good thing and elevate it to an ultimate thing. And the Bible calls that idolatry. Now, not only do we do that with our kids, you can also do that with your spouse. You can do that with your significant other, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. How about this? Your job. If you're in school, your grades. How about this one? Your hobbies. Dudes are really bad at this one. Hunting season starts. Man, you don't see them in church for six months. Right? The weather's nice, but they're, they're out worshiping the golf course. Right? Wood whittling or whatever, whatever you're into. Right? We can take something that's good, but is intended to be secondary. We make it primary. Now it's an idol. What about the younger generations, Gen Z, the, the younger ones? The, a big idol seems to be, to me, seeking peer approval through social media clout. Right? The like, man, you live for the likes and the retweets and all, man, all that kind of stuff. One of the things that we just talked about recently on Wednesday nights in our, in our student uh, ministry, shameless plug, if you're a, a teenager, middle school or high school, or you got a teenager, bring them on Wednesday nights, man. It's awesome. We're having a great time. We're learning the word. We're having fun playing games. Uh, you're, if, you're, if your teen's not here on Wednesday night, they're really missing out. But we're having a, a great time. But one of the things we talked about recently was this terrifying correlation over the last decade between the rise of social media use among teenagers with the rise of depression, anxiety, and self-harm in the same time. It is freaky. You can trace it back. Right? The, 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 the lines, the poles are, are almost directly correlated. And isn't that what idols always do? I, listen, guys, idols always overpromise and underdeliver. Like all these things, and some of them are good. We think that are going to satisfy us in some ultimate way, and they end up leaving us more broken than we started. Why is that? Because secondary things were never designed to be primary things. Good things were never intended to be God things. And so while, while idols in our day may not be 90-foot golden statues, they are just as real and just as deadly in your life today and in my life today. Now, closely related to that, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but our, our culture has experienced an amazing amount of change over the last five or ten years. I mean, we are moving and changing as a, as a culture at a breakneck speed. Some of those changes, I would argue, have been good changes. Like uh, in my day, man, when I was in college and I wanted to, to rent a movie with Cheryl, we actually had to get in the car and drive down to these things that some of you have never even heard of called movie rental stores. All right? So if you're under like 35, you probably have no idea. Like Blockbuster, right? Hollywood movie. You had to actually pick a movie, drive home, put it in. Some of y'all even remember the little sticker on the old school ones, Be Kind Rewind. Right? You remember that? You old folks remember that, right? So that, that was a reality. It's funny. Uh, our 10-year-old son, Judah, just turned uh, 10. He walks in the room the other day, Cheryl and I in the living room, 
he found one of our old cell phones from like 2012. And he goes, what's this supposed to be? Some kind of phone? You know, like he literally thought it was like a toy that was so poorly designed that it was, even, it was unbelievable that it was supposed to be a phone, right? He could not in his 10-year-old mind even fathom that something that doesn't have touchscreen and facial recognition was actually a real phone that people actually used at one point in time. A lot has changed culturally in the last decade. Some of it's good. Like, I, I'm a sucker for technology. I love that stuff. But I would argue not all change has been good or healthy. I've watched over the last decade as culture from evolved from the ideology of, hey, hey, listen, you need to give secular worldviews and lifestyles equality. So we just, we just want equality. We just want equal rights, okay? And then we move from, over the last 10 years, we move from equality to affirmation. So now equality is not good enough. You have to affirm that any worldview, any lifestyle choice is just as good and valid as any other. And now, in the last couple of years, the goalposts have been moved even further. We've gone from equality to affirmation, and now it's a demand for celebration. So it's no longer equality. That's not enough. Affirmation, that's not enough. You must bow at the altar of celebration, or we're going to throw you into the fiery furnace. Or to use a more modern vernacular, we will cancel you. See, idolatry is never satisfied until you bow all the way down when the music starts to play in culture. And so this is truth number one. If you're a note taker, write this down. This will be on the screens for you. The idols of culture will always, always demand your ultimate allegiance. The goalposts will constantly be moved. Cultural idols will take more and more and more, and they will demand that you bow down and worship until they have all of your allegiance. Now, sadly, I can tell you as a pastor, I've watched over the last 10 years as no small number of churches and professing Christians have slowly begun to cave to this cultural pressure to bow down to the golden statue of tolerance, which, by the way, is not actually tolerance. It's intolerance robed as tolerance. Because pop culture tolerance says, you either believe like me and celebrate everything that I want you to celebrate, or we'll silence you, we'll cancel you. That's not tolerance. That's the opposite of tolerance. Now, some of you have tasted that. I've, I've met with some of you. I've counseled some of you. Right? Some of you have lost your businesses over that. Others of you have wrestled whether you need to take early retirement because of the demands to bow down to some of these cultural idols. Some of you have tasted this on your high school campus or your college campus in your workplace. Listen, friend, there are all sorts of idols in 2022. We don't need some 90-foot golden statue to fall into the trap of idolatry. And the demand from Nebuchadnezzar is clear, as is the demand in our culture today. You will bow down, you will worship, or you will pay a high price. Same message today in America in 2022 as it was 2,600 years ago in Babylon. Now, how will the people of God respond in Daniel chapter 3? And I would say, pay close attention to this because I think they give us the blueprint for how we respond in our culture today. What we see next, verses 8 through 12, is that three young men refuse to bow when the music plays. So the whole crowd, the whole party, everybody puts down their champagne glass, the music plays, they bow down, they worship the golden idol, except for three guys in the back. Three teenagers, by the way. Scholars believe they were 15, 16, 17 years old. Some cultural spies kind of see them in the back. They go to the king. They tattletale on these guys. They're like, king, hey, listen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I saw them. They are defying you. 
They're making a mockery of you. If you don't deal with them, this cancer is going to spread all over the empire. You're going to lose control, and they're going to take over your power. So they go, and they say, and probably out of jealousy, right? Because these guys had been elevated to prominent positions in the kingdom. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, upon hearing this, because he's such a narcissistic punk, right? He's, he's, he's fired up. He's like, wait, wait a minute. You, wait a minute. You, there are three guys who refused my command? Let's pick up in the story in verse 13. It says, then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, he's hot, right? Commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego be brought in. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered them and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of all those musical instruments, fall down and worship the image that I have made. It will all be well and good. In other words, boys, I'm going to give you a second chance. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And then he goes next level. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So he pulls in the three nonconformers, the three guys that don't bow, into a private room meeting. He says, hey, boys, listen, I, I like you. Let's not make this a bigger deal than it's got to be. You can still worship your God. You can read your holy book. You can go to church on Sunday. You can go to your youth group on Wednesday night. I'm not trying to take any of that away from you, but you got to work with me here. When the music plays, just bow down, just one knee. You don't even have to go two knees. Just a little bow of the head. Work with me here. Give me something, and if you do, it's all good. It's all taken care of. You're my boys. But, if you refuse to bow down, I need you to know I'm going to have to slow roast you in my oven in the backyard. And then he makes a mistake. He makes a tactical error. He goes next level and he says, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Uh-uh. In other words, he's saying, boys, your God is JV. He's no match for King Nebuchadnezzar. And in this moment, I can kind of picture God in heaven. He's getting ready to send down the angel to kind of handle this. And then all of a sudden, he's like, nah, man, I was going to send the angel, but you brought my name into it. You brought, you brought my name into it. So now I'm coming down myself, King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to deal with you myself. It's kind of like when I get home after a long day at work, man, and I'm kind of sitting in my lounge chair, and my kids are acting up, right? And I tell them to cut it out, and they keep going. I'm like, man, if I have to get up out of this chair... I done told you three times. If I got to get up after this out of this chair, it's not going to go well for you. This is kind of the picture right here, right? And Nebuchadnezzar says, who is the God who can deliver you out of my hands? And God's like, yeah, I'm coming down now, right? Now, a lot of folk in our culture and in that culture fold at this point. You put enough cultural pressure on them in the university classroom or in their workplace or their neighborhood. You, you put enough pressure on them, you make the price high enough, and they will cave on their convictions one by one. That was true then. It's true now. I want you to watch what happens in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego answered and said to their king, these are some bold teenagers. They said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
Now, this is astounding courage. This is incredible. Now, I want you to get your, your mind around this scene. Three teenage boys, so rooted in their biblical conviction, right? They knew Exodus. They knew the Ten Commandments. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. They are so rooted in their biblical conviction that they dare defy the most powerful man on the planet with their very lives hanging in the balance. Man, and I, and I, lo- I love their answer. King, listen, God, you need to know, God is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us. We have confidence in him. But even if he doesn't, we need you to know we're never going to bow down and worship your idols. And as I was studying this week, I just, I remembered that there's a wall hanging in our student ministry room upstairs. I ran upstairs. I got a picture of it. I want to show it to you. This hangs upstairs in our student ministry room. And if not, he is still good. Right out of Daniel chapter 3. We know God is powerful. Our confidence is in him. But if he should choose not to rescue me from this flame, from this situation, he is still good. He is still my God. I still am going to treasure him. And I will never bow down to any other God. Now listen, guys, that is otherworldly courage. Only the Spirit of God can breathe that type of courage into our lives and make us say, man, I don't care if that means I don't get invited to the cool kid party anymore. I don't care if that means I don't get the promotion at work. I don't care if you cancel me, mock me, ostracize me. You can kill me. I know where my security lies. In life, give me Jesus. In death, give me Jesus. And so, follower of Christ, let me give you truth number two right from the text this morning. It'll be on the screens for you. Believer, we need deep convictions that fuel death-defying courage. No more of this little flimsy, mamby-pamby faith. We just slap a Jesus sticker on the back of our car and never live for him. We need this real deep conviction that will drive courage when the fire gets hot in our culture, in your workplace, in your school place, in your neighborhood, with your friends. I think about the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Hey, Paul, we're going to kill you. That's all good. To die is gain. I can't wait to be in the new kingdom with Jesus. All right, Paul, we're going to let you live. Good. For me to live is Christ. I'm going to tell everybody I know. All right, Paul, we're going to torture you. We're going to stone you. We're going to imprison you. We're going to beat you with rods and sticks. That's all good because Jesus is with me in the fire. What do you do with somebody like that? Reminds me of a story I read about recently of a Romanian pastor. Some of you have heard of him. Joseph Son, who, was, um, who, who lived and, and preached in the communist area, old, old Soviet Union. And uh, he was called in by the communist authorities because they heard he was preaching uh, the gospel, which was illegal at the time. And uh, Joseph figured that he was going to die. They were going to execute him. And so he got all of his affairs in order, and he went in, and he sat down with the interrogation officer. And, and this, is, this is a quote. This is what he said. I just want to read this to you. He says, I have to tell you, First, that I, I am ready to die. I've put my affairs in order. Your supreme weapon is killing, but you need to understand that my supreme weapon is dying. Because when you kill me, people all over Romania will read my books and listen to my sermons, and they will believe on the God that I preach even more than they do now. And they let him live. Right? Like, yeah, we can't have that. Y'all, we, we need this kind of deep conviction 
that fuels real courage in the real world. You say, Chris, how, man, how do, I, how do I get that? I can't imagine sitting down in front of an interrogation officer that could lynch me, hang me, cut my head off, and saying something like, how, how do I get that? Let me just give you quickly three, three ways I think that we can prepare now for when the rubber meets the road tomorrow, next week, next year, 10 years from now. So three practical ways that we can prepare to be courageous. Number one, draw your lines before you get to the furnace. I promise you, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they weren't standing there in the moment when the music played going, hey boys, what are we gonna do? We're gonna, let's just bow down one knee. Let's, uh, let's, uh, maybe let's just bow our heads and they won't notice us. They had already made the decision. They had already drawn their lines in the sand. They didn't have any decision to make in the moment of testing. Draw your lines now, dear brother and sister. You don't draw your lines in the fire. You draw your lines before you get to the furnace. So that when you get there, it's like, man, this is what I believe. This is where my line is. Here I stand, so help me God. Draw those cultural lines now in your life. Here's practical way number two, you can prepare to be courageous. Go deep relationally with God. Here's what I mean by that. If, listen, if God is just an intellectual exercise for you and not a person that you know, not a relationship that you have, listen, your knees will buckle when the pressure gets turned up. And so what I, I would just plead with you from a, from a place of, of pastoral love with you this morning, spend time with Jesus. I know you're busy. I'm busy. I know your phone is buzzing and beeping and rattling, and I, I get it. Throw it somewhere and go in a closet, walk out in the woods, spend time with Jesus, spend time in his word, spend time praying, turn some worship music on in the shower as you drive to work, journal what he's teaching you. Because here's the deal, intellectual belief separated from relational connection will fail you in the fire every time. Intellectual belief separated from relational connection will fail you in the flames every single time. Go deep relationally with God. It can't be an intellectual exercise. It's got to be a person that you know. Now, here's a third practical way that you prepare to stand in those days. Number three is we have to stand in community. Notice these guys, these three teenage boys were not alone. They didn't stand alone. They stood in community. So let me just ask you, who's your Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Who are the people in your life that when you're standing there and you're tempted to bow the knee, you're going to go, boy, get up. Don't you put your knee on the ground. We've come too far. You're not going to sell it. We're not going out that way. Get your butt up, boy. Who's your Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? We need to stand in community. That's why we got the blue tin out there. Go get you some community, y'all. We need community. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is furious, as you can imagine. He demands that the furnace, if you read the text, he says, turn the furnace up seven times the normal heat. That's his way of saying, just crank that bad boy all the way up. You know, just in case God can save somebody out of a normal oven, but not an extra hot oven, you know. So the soldiers take the three teenage boys up there. They toss them in. Scholars think the top of the furnace, there was probably an opening in the top. There was an opening in the side where you could observe what was going on inside. So hot that the soldiers literally die as they're casting these three boys into the furnace for not bowing. Now, you probably can guess what happens next. You probably know uh, what happens next, but we're going to read it anyway. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. <laughs> he jumps out of his seat and declared to his counselors, did we not cast three, man's, three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king, 
And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Jesus said, you brought me into it now, son. I'm coming down myself. Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace and he goes, hey, look, I threw three dudes in the fire. How come there's four? And the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. Now, biblical scholars call this a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. See, Jesus didn't just show up in the New Testament. He's always been there. The Apostle Paul, uh, John, I'm sorry, tells us that he was a part of creation in Genesis chapter 1. He's always been there. He's always been active in the life of his people, even in the Old Testament. So Nebuchadnezzar can't believe his eyes. He calls out the three teenage boys. He has them examined, sees that not a hair on their head has been cinched, and then he begins to praise the God of Daniel and these three teenage boys. And that leads us to our third truth this morning. Be on the screens for you. If you're, again, if you're a note taker, write this one down. Listen, believer, God may not always deliver you from the fire, but he will always walk you through the flames. He may not always deliver you from the fire, but he will always, always walk with you through the flames. Now, some of y'all need to hear that today because you're in the furnace. You're in the room right now. You're watching online right now. Man, you are in the furnace of anxiety and depression, and it feels like there's no way out. Some of you are in the furnace of cultural pressure, right, to acquiesce and to affirm and celebrate certain things at your school or your workplace, and it just feels like you're burning alive, man. I have no win or lose here. It feels like I'm going to lose no matter what. Some of you are in the furnace of being pressured to do things, to compromise convictions with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Some of you are in the furnace of doubt because you've got health problems or financial issues, or maybe your marriage is just hanging on by a thread. And for some of you, the fire's just really hot right now. And if that's you, I want you to know this. God may or may not deliver you from the fire today or tomorrow, but he will be with you in the flames. As Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said, when you walk into a fiery furnace, rest assured Jesus is already there waiting for you. And I want to close just by reading one of my favorite passages, Isaiah 43, God speaking to his people as they head into exile, they head, head into their own fiery furnace. This is what he says. Just personalize this. Believer, claim this for your own life. Isaiah, the prophet, writes this. Fear not, God speaking to you, to me, if you're in Christ. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overcome you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God. Now, as awesome as this story is in Daniel 3, I need you to know that this ultimately points us to an even greater story because in the New Testament, Jesus shows up again, this time as the greater Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who also refused to bow the knee to the idols of this world, who was also thrown into the fiery furnace of a cross and death and also walked out of that fiery furnace through resurrection to offer you and me forgiveness, freedom, and life now and for forever. That's who Jesus is.
That's what this whole story is pointing our hearts to. That we need a Savior, that we can't be courageous like this in our own strength, that we need a God to breathe this into our hearts and lives and souls and sink this deep into our bones because I'm too weak to do this on my own. And I'm guessing that you are too. But God in us, God through us can accomplish more than we could ever imagine. And so what I just kind of want to end our time today a little bit differently. I'm going to put three uh, reflection questions on the screen for you. And just for two minutes, for two minutes, I want you to read these questions. I want you to pray. I want you to do business with God. And then we're going to stand and we're going to close in worship. But you spend two minutes praying.